Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and I love all things tech. And today we're going to tackle a story that recently unfolded, recently as of the recording of this show. I'm sitting in the recording studio on October 26th, 2018. It's not my normal studio either, so if you hear other noises, that's because we've got noisy people walking around the office and I'm in a different studio. That's commentary. But this story unfolded just at the very end of October 2018. That was when the auction house, Christie's, put a special item up on the auctioning block. It was a somewhat blurry portrait of a man dressed in antiquated clothing. It looked like a painting that could have come from the 18th century, from one of any number of artists, but it was, in fact, a much more recent painting. The artist was not a famous painter. In fact, the artist wasn't a person. 
It was an artificially intelligent algorithm that created the portrait through the process of machine learning. And what's more, the group of human artists who supplied the AI-generated portrait had taken a great deal of direction, let's say, from a different computer programmer, but perhaps did not do as much to attribute that coder's work to the creation of this portrait that they should have done. So what we have here sounds a bit like a 21st century futuristic art heist, only this isn't about stealing a work of art, but rather a means of generating art itself. And it's creating a lot of interesting conversations about concepts ranging from what is art in the first place to the practical applications of machine learning to the nature of open source code. So let's dive down into this because when it comes to discussing uh, our how technology interacts with our lives, this is a doozy of a story. It highlights not just technological issues, but human ones that just happen to intersect with technology. So. To begin with, let's talk about the tech behind generating this portrait in the first place. It is an application of machine learning. That's one of those topics we've talked about a lot on tech stuff, especially recently. But basically, machine learning is all about designing processes that allow machines to parse data in some useful way and then apply the results of those operations to future problems. But that's pretty darn vague, right? That's not That doesn't really tell you anything useful. If you dive down a bit further, it's about creating a framework within which machines can learn to perform a task without having to be programmed to do it. So let's use an example, and it's one I've talked about a lot because it was one of the early examples of what machine learning could do once it reached a certain level of sophistication. Back in 2012, Google showed how their computer scientist teams had taught an AI algorithm or neural network to recognize images of cats. Now, this was perhaps a funny way of showing an approach to a difficult problem. So, if you want a computer to recognize an image of a cat, if it's a specific image of a cat, you have a couple different options. One is you can program the computer so that when it encounters a specific arrangement of pixels for this particular image, it recognizes that as the image of a cat and that you have programmed the computer to say, when you see this arrangement of pixels, then that means this is a cat. The computer doesn't understand what a cat is. It doesn't have any context. It doesn't understand what any other picture of a cat might be because that would be a different arrangement of pixels. So you could program a computer to do this and it would be able to do it with that one image. But if you gave it a different image of a cat or even an image of the same cat, but it's a different picture, the computer would not be able to identify it. You would have to repeat the entire process from beginning to end to get the same result. And once you start adding up images, you realize this is not really an efficient means of teaching a computer anything. Or you could create an artificial neural network that examines the pixels in an image, and each neuron might be looking at a different element of the data to determine if that data was consistent with images of cat pictures. So we've talked about this recently too. An artificial neuron can take in multiple Bin uh, binary points of data, zeros and ones, and then create a single binary output. 
So it might be looking at specific features that might have to do with ears, for example. And if it detects that the ears are consistent with those of a cat, it might pass a positive response further down the neural network. And a full collection of all these, looking at multiple points of data, would allow the computer to come to a decision. Does this image represent a cat or does it represent something else? So in this way, by feeding thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of images to a computer, you can train it to recognize cats. And the more you train it and the more closely you're able to tweak the network so that it weights certain elements more than others, the better it gets. So the tweaking makes the network more capable. And eventually you get to a point where it can identify a picture as either being a cat or not a cat with pretty good results. Um, back in 2012, when Google was talking about this, it was still a little janky. It could sometimes recognize a cat, and sometimes it would think that a person was a cat, or that a cat was a person. So it was not infallible, <laughs> but it was pretty good. Now, because I've covered artificial neural networks in recent episodes of Tech Stuff, I'm not going to go through the whole thing all over again. That high level I just gave you, that's a pretty good starting point. It's just important to remember that the general output here is through training a network using that input data set. In this case, or in the case of that example, hundreds of thousands of images of cats. Machine learning can actually take a few different approaches. The one that I sort of outlined earlier would kind of fall into the category of supervised machine learning. See, in that approach, we human beings are trying to teach a machine through algorithms and data sets to recognize something that we already know the answer for, right? You can look at a picture and you can recognize whether that picture is of a cat or not. So you already know the answer. You're not asking the computer to give you new information. You're trying to teach the computer to do something that you already can do. So we, human beings, are able to supervise the machine as it is learning this process and make those minor adjust adjustments that are needed throughout the system in order for it to get better at its job. That is supervised machine learning. We can keep working with it until it reaches what we consider to be an acceptable level of success, which doesn't mean it has to be perfect. It just has to be good enough for whatever it is we're building it for. But there's another approach called unsupervised machine learning. And as you might imagine, this is different from the previous one. Now, in this approach, you only have input data, and your goal as a human is to learn more about that data itself. So you don't have a correct answer in mind. You don't already know that the data represents, say, a cat in a photo. It's a different type of problem you're looking at. Uh, the machine is learning about the nature of the information itself, including how different points of data relate to one another or correspond with other data. And you, in turn, can learn more about the information as well. So within this category, you have a couple of subcategories. There are clustering problems. With a clustering problem, you're learning about the groupings within data. So one example might be that you have a population of customers. Let's say you own a business, you've got customers. You have data that represents all these different customers, and you're using the collective behaviors of those customers to sort them into meaningful groups so that you can better serve each of those groups. 
maybe you learn that there are four basic types of customers, and that helps you plan out your business so that you can cater it to those four types. But another type of problem in unsupervised machine learning is called an association problem. Now, in those problems, you want to learn rules that describe large parts of the data that you're feeding into the system. So, for example, let's go back to you run a business, you've got this big pool of customers, and you're feeding all the customer behavior data into your system. It might tell you that, hey, it turns out that 75% of the customers who are buying widgets go on to buy sprockets. So that would tell you, hey, now I know more information. I know that if I sell a widget to someone, there's a good chance I can upsell that and include a sprocket as well. So I'm going to tailor my business approach to try and take advantage of that. Now, the reason I went through all of this is to explain that the type of artificial intelligence algorithm that was used to produce the painting I was talking about at the top of the show falls into a group called Generative Adversarial Networks, or GAN, or GAN. These are used in unsupervised machine learning applications. So it's in that second category I was just talking about. So what is with this name? What is a uh, generative adversarial network? Well, for one thing, it actually uses a pair of deep neural net architecture networks, These two nets are in competition with one another. That's why it's called an adversarial network. You have these two different constructs that are working against each other. The approach was first proposed by researchers at the University of Montreal, and we chiefly associate the concept with a guy named Ian Goodfellow. Ian Goodfellow wrote the definitive paper on the subject back in 2014. And it is fascinating. So from a very high level, what's happening is that you have a neural network called the generator, and you have a second neural network called the discriminator. So you're feeding the discriminator your input data. Let's, again, go with pictures of cats. So actual pictures of cats, photographs of cats, if you will. You're you're feeding photographs of cats to the discriminator. The generator's job is to create a an image that fools the discriminator into thinking that that's a legitimate photograph of a cat. But in fact, it was created or generated by the generator. So you've got two processes going on at the same time. The generator is trying to create essentially a forgery or a counterfeit. It's it's creating something from scratch to fool the discriminator into thinking this is a legitimate piece of data from the training data set. The discriminator is looking at each image and thinking, all right, now does this represent a real picture or is this something that is coming from the generator that's designed to fool me? And the two are working against each other. Both networks learn as this goes on. If the discriminator gets an image and rejects it, that becomes a feedback to the generator. And the message is essentially this was not good enough, and the generator starts to try again, taking a slightly different approach. If the discriminator accepts it, the generator says, aha, you're onto something, but then you can tweak the discriminator and say, this was wrong, you you got this part wrong, and it can start to try and look for signs that might otherwise fool it. The goal here is that you are going to have a generator producing better and better versions of whatever it is you're trying to create. And that could be 
a picture, it could be text, it could be music. You could feed any sort of data to both of these uh, systems in an effort to produce a computer-generated version of that thing. And as long as it reached a certain level of quality, the discriminator won't be able to tell the difference. And then you've got yourself a computer-generated whatever it might be, in this case, a painting. I'll explain more about the specifics of this case in just a moment, but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. 
Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. So a couple of years ago, there were computer scientists at Microsoft as well as TU Delft University, and they were working together with a banking company, ING, to create a brand new painting in the style of the painter Rembrandt. This project involved processing high-resolution digital scans of 346 different images of Rembrandt's works, specifically portraits of men. That information was fed to a deep learning algorithm that analyzed Rembrandt's style and also the techniques that were common across all the images. What were the common elements that were found in those numerous paintings? And eventually... This machine was told, or this system was told, to produce a new painting based on those uh, those common factors. And so it narrowed down the approach to be a portrait of a Caucasian white male, because that's what most of Rembrandt's portraits were of, uh, somewhere between the ages of 30 and 40, wearing white and black clothing, because again, that was the vast majority of the portraits that Rembrandt created. And the focus of the subject was off to the right, like looking slightly off to the right, because a lot of the subjects in the other paintings were doing the same. The algorithm also analyzed the faces of all those portraits and came up with sort of a kind of a mishmash average of them to produce the face of the fictional Dutch gentleman in the new painting. To go a step further, the team then added depth to this painting. It was a two-dimensional image, And then they decided to add some depth. They included some ridges and some bumps that would have been created from brush strokes onto a two-dimensional surface. So if you're using paint, then it's actually a three-dimensional image. You know, if you get super close enough, you can see raised areas and dips and trenches and stuff like that that the brush leaves. And it all depends upon your painting technique, how these get laid out on canvas. So the team added those details in to make it look even more authentic. Ultimately, the design was printed using 13 layers of ultraviolet-based ink. And the result is a work that looks like it could have come from Rembrandt, complete with techniques Rembrandt used in actually making his brushstrokes. And that's just one high-profile example of computers generating paintings after being fed information about works that human artists have created. Now, let's get back to the story of the recently auctioned painting. Now, to do that, we have to talk about a young man named Robbie Barrett. Barrett is 19 years old and is attending Stanford and has been doing some really interesting work in machine learning. It was his code that would be the basis for the computer-generated portrait that was recently auctioned off. Barrett's work was going a step further than copying the style of an established artist. Barrett's algorithms would work to create new images after having analyzed numerous real-world examples. So just a couple of years ago, the state of the art in GAN networks, or GAN networks, might produce some really disturbing images. Like, there are early pictures of GAN attempts at making realistic human faces that were not terribly successful, and that's because those networks were able to recognize certain basic visual elements in images, but not understand the relationships between multiple elements within an image. So you could end up with a face with really extreme features like pronounced asymmetry, but 
Over just a short amount of time, people have developed much more sophisticated GAN algorithms, and performance has improved. And there are, of course, artists who have gone in a different approach, specifically emphasizing some of these more absurd elements in order to get that kind of a result when you're actually producing art. Barrett created GAN algorithms that could generate all sorts of interesting images. He was enabling computers to make art themselves. And sure, these computers were learning to create art after being fed numerous paintings and images from human artists. But you could argue that if you want to become a human artist, you have to do the same thing. You have to study art that was created by other people, so computers are no different. The computers weren't replicating specific works. They weren't trying to make a copy. They were learning various styles. Barrett would uh, frequently put these images and also the algorithms he used to create those images up on GitHub for free. It was open source. He also had uh, people download these and upload their own art. And it was all in the spirit of this open source community. This way, not only could people use the tools that Barrett had created, they could understand how those tools worked. And perhaps in the future, they could make their own tools, tweaking the approach that Barrett had used, uh, maybe making art that was even more indistinguishable from human art, or perhaps going in a totally different direction, making something truly new and alien. By the way, some of the images created by Barrett's algorithms are a little unsettling. They can be surreal and absurd, and some of them even come across a little sinister to me. But that's my own interpretation. I mean, that is what art is all about, is the interpretation of the person looking at art. But they remind me of some of the horror movie effects you might see where the visual effects artist will distort a person's face for the effect of horror, like in the movie The Ring. Anyway, Barrett created several GAN algorithms and put them up online for others to use. And this in itself was not unusual. There are many in the digital art field who work on AI who have done similar things. Now, he creates this code. Let's take a trip across the world from Stanford over to France. That's where three artists in their mid-20s were working in a group they had called Obvious. And their stated goal is to promote GANism. That is the art that has been generated through AI algorithms running on this GAN approach. Now, according to an article on Medium, written by one of these artists, they, quote, want to send out an update of the state of the research in AI, end quote. They want to do this. They want to tell the world what is going on in the world of AI research through showing off artwork made by AI. So kind of a creative artistic way of talking about artificial intelligence. The group says that the value of the art may not be in the art itself, but rather the discussions that the art inspires. Like, what is it that makes art art? Can machines be creative? Who ultimately would you say is the artist in a work that was created by a machine? What does that art mean? Who does it belong to? That's a big one. So the artists reached out to Barrett when they were tackling this project. They wanted to use a GAN algorithm to generate a portrait in a style similar to what you see in 18th century paintings out of Europe. The students have made it clear that Barrett had been a big part of their inspiration. More on that in just a second. Now, the members of Obvious began using GAN code to generate portraits. And they created several of them, 11 in fact, of a fictional noble family. 
they named the Bellamy family. B-E-L-A-M-Y. The name Bellamy itself was a bit of a pun and a reference to Ian Goodfellow, the guy who wrote that main paper on Gans in the first place. Bellamy can be broken down into Bell and Ami. That would mean, although different spellings, it would mean good friend or good fellow, which is kind of cute, right? Well, the artists produced these portraits, and they are all of hollow-eyed nobles that stare right into the void in a way that... Actually, that's getting off track. Never mind. It, it it creeps me out a little bit. But the last in the line of portraits would be Edmund de Bellamy, the fictional noble whose portrait would go up on auction in October 2018 and fetched way more money than was anticipated. And so, Obvious had fed to the algorithms numerous paintings from the 18th century to guide its efforts. And once they started producing these, they had each one signed with a line of code referencing the algorithm. They framed the machine-generated portraits in golden frames. And when Edmund de Bellamy went up for auction, the best guess was that it would probably fetch between $7,000 and $11,000. Instead, the winning bid was for more than $430,000. So that raises a good question. Who the heck should get that money? Who was responsible for this painting? And that would become something of a controversy. I'll explain more in just a second, but first let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. 
Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So as the group Obvious was getting press coverage for the AI-produced Bellamy portraits, this is before they had even put one up for auction, some people, including Barat, uh, expressed some disappointment with the group. They said that it looked like they had used Barat's code to produce these portraits, and yet they weren't quick to attribute him. They didn't give him credit, at least not readily and not visibly in a lot of locations. And so his code, while it was open source, and he didn't begrudge anyone from being able to use it, would have usually meant that people would give him credit. Typically in the open source community, it's considered bad form or even gauche, if you prefer, to not give credit where credit is due. As to how much of the code was actually used unaltered, that is a bit of an open question. The artists at Obvious have admitted that they did use his code, and they changed it a little bit. Uh, Some other artists say they believe that 90% or more of the code was unaltered. One such artist, a New Zealander named Tom White, said he downloaded Barrett's code and ran it unaltered to see if he could produce images similar to those that Obvious had generated. And he said, "Uh, they look pretty close. So I took a look as as well. I would say that the ones that, that White had created with that AI have a little bit more of the weird facial distortion thing going on than the ones that were made by Obvious, but they are fairly similar. Throughout the project, members of Obvious reached out to Barat for for help in getting the GAN algorithms to run properly on computers. Those communications are up on GitHub, so, I mean, they definitely happen. Anyone can see them. So that's definitely a sign that a significant portion of the code used to create the expensive painting came from Barat. So we get into that tricky question. Who owns the art before it gets purchased at auction, obviously? So does the computer scientist who created the code own anything that the code produces? I mean, the code has to have a programmer. Without a programmer, there's no code. So without the code, you get no artistic output. But then again, you could say that human artists learn from their teachers. There's a long history of artists taking on apprentices, and those apprentices later on go on to become great artists of their own. So maybe you could argue that Barat was a teacher and the AI was the student. And therefore, Barat wouldn't own the art. He didn't make it. He just taught the student how to make art. Not in a traditional sense, but that's how it happened. But here's another problem. AI cannot own stuff. Artificial intelligence can't have property. We have no legal means to assign ownership so that a program or an algorithm or an artificial neural network could own property. And even if we did, what good would it do? The AI doesn't want or need anything. It doesn't even have will or self-awareness. So maybe obvious could claim ownership because 
They were the ones who fed the information to the algorithm. They're the ones who gave the algorithm the access to all the different portraits. They made some changes to the code, and the algorithms ran on computers that they controlled. So if the code was using their assets, maybe they own the output. But this is also complicated. They didn't build the algorithm. They made use of it, but they didn't design it from the ground up. But if someone else could have run the code and used the same general pool of images and trained the code, they might have seen similar results, which means someone else could have done the exact same thing that Obvious did. And so that raises questions as well. Maybe there's nothing special about owning the machine, in other words. In the digital world, using open source code to make something new and then profit from it, sell it, that happens regularly. But again, it's all on how you do it. If you follow the general rules of etiquette, you're typically pretty good. But if not, people think of that as being kind of a jerk face. So it's not, it's, it's frowned upon in the open source community. Barad is quoted in a piece on The Verge as saying, quote, I'm more concerned about the fact that actual artists using AI are being deprived of the spotlight. It's a very bad first impression for the field to have, end quote. So he's not saying he's upset and missing out on money, but rather that the, the whole field is getting misrepresented. The Verge piece also does a great job pointing out how many uh, in the AI digital art field feel that Obvious is painting a misleading picture, to use a pun. That if you were to look at the press release uh, that the group has put out and the way that they've presented the art, it would seem as if these programs were largely undirected or even fully autonomous, and they aren't. Just because it's called unsupervised machine learning doesn't mean that there's no human component. So there's a debate going on within the digital art world on where in the spectrum these algorithms should fall. Are they closer to being tools, like what a paintbrush would be to a traditional painter? Or are they more closely connected to a collaborator, maybe someone who's assisting a painter? But they certainly are not fully autonomous robots. Now, in a way, this question of ownership actually makes me think of an earlier incident involving a different art form. Uh, it involved a monkey, a digital camera, and a lawsuit. So back in 2011, a photographer named David Slater was working on an assignment in Indonesia, and that's where he met Naruto. Naruto was a seven-year-old crested macaque, so Naruto was a monkey. Now, on this assignment, Naruto at one point grabbed Slater's camera, and while handling Slater's camera, Naruto took a photo of himself. So it's a monkey selfie, and it's a great photo. If you've not seen it, you've got to look up monkey selfie because it is amazing. The monkey obviously didn't understand what it was doing, but the selfie is just about perfect. So then this image goes up online, and it goes viral. It gets posted all over the place, including on Wikipedia. And David Slater would reach out to Wikipedia and say, hey, you can't just put my photograph up on your site without asking for permission or paying a licensing fee. And Wikipedia said, dude, you didn't take the photograph. It doesn't belong to you. It was taken on your camera, but you didn't snap the picture. A monkey took the photo. So you don't have copyright to that image. In fact, 
no one has copyright to that image because newsflash, animals can't hold copyrights to any work. But then PETA, aka People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, would sue David Slater and a publishing company called Blurb for copyright infringement, saying, hey, Naruto took that photo, so Naruto should hold the copyright. The judge in that case would ultimately say that animals can't hold copyright, backing up what Wikipedia had said, and that this whole argument was invalid. PETA appealed the decision. It went to, or it was scheduled to go to a higher court, but ultimately the various parties came to a settlement out of court. And this is where I kind of roll my eyes at PETA. Uh, But the situation, while silly on the surface, raises questions that also apply to artificial intelligence. In a case like this, who has the right to use or exploit a work? Now, I would argue that in the case with artificial intelligence, it gets even thornier than that. Right now, we're talking about paintings. But as I said earlier, GAN algorithms could produce all sorts of different stuff, including text. So we could have a computer-generated novel or a screenplay in the future. And sure, the first versions of those will probably be terrible. And to be fair, we already have a surplus of terrible books and terrible movies and terrible TV shows that are made by real human beings. We don't, we don't need robots to make more of those. But we could also end up with some that are interesting or that say something surprising that people will value. In those cases, who has a claim to that intellectual property? Who should profit from it? Maybe it should be the person who wrote the code in the first place. But if that's the case, let's take this thought experiment in another direction. Let's say someone creates code for an AI that does something entirely different. It's not generating any content. Let's say it's the artificial intelligence you would need to power an autonomous car. Now let's say one of those cars is found to have caused a really bad accident. So should the person who wrote the code be held responsible? What if the scenario that led up to the accident was so unusual that no one would have ever predicted it? Because it's one thing to overlook a common event, Like if someone were to program an autonomous car and say, oh crap, I totally forgot about stop signs, that would be demonstrably bad. And you could say, well, that is is endangerment. That is definitely not cool. But it's a totally different thing if you just don't predict an accident that involves a lot of unique factors. Because those happen too. There's stuff that happens on the road every single day that happens in a way that nobody anticipated. And because we have so many people driving so many cars on so many roads under so many conditions on a daily basis, it's inevitable that we're going to have moments where those unique situations pop up and it would be impossible to identify or predict them. So in those cases, would you still hold hold someone who made the code responsible that they weren't able to predict something that nobody could predict? Or does that put them at an unreasonable standard? Is it the fault of the car manufacturer? Is it the fault of the person who designed the road? I mean, there's so many different questions. And we don't have all the answers. But I think in this case with the painting, we have this high-profile example of AI producing something. It leads us to get into a deeper conversation about those ideas. And my guess is we will ultimately come up with answers that are not entirely satisfactory for all situations. But maybe some people will even go so far as to to 
vehemently disagree with them. But more importantly, we will actually have maybe answers, right? So yeah, it might be answers that not everyone is happy with, but at least they would be answers. Right now we have nothing. So this is a, a good case study for us to say, we've got to start thinking about this stuff because the era of AI playing a more pivotal role in our lives is right around the corner. And it would be better for us to figure this out now rather than have to react to it when it's too late later. I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say about this subject. Why don't you pop on over to techstuffpodcast.com. That's our website. Get in touch with me and let me know what you think. If you have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, I'd love to hear those too. Make sure you go over to tpublic.com slash techstuff. Check out our, our store there. Lots of cool things over there. Get yourself something fun for the holidays because every purchase you make goes to help the show and I greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.